Hey, what's going on, everybody? Happy Easter. This is your boy, Nader Crankfield, the host and founder of Seeking Excellence Podcast. Today's episode seemed very fitting just after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, after we just celebrated that, to talk about or to share with you the story of Brian Walsh, Mr. Brian Walsh. We recorded this actually a few months ago, and Brian is a, is a friend of mine who I was blessed to meet on a retreat last summer and decided to, you know, after I read his book, I heard his story at the retreat read his book that he gave us copies of at the retreat and just really wanted to share with you guys with him on the podcast because he's got an incredible story. So basically the, the rundown is uh, Brian Walsh was a teenager and he was a volunteer firefighter and he was in experience what is called a flashover, basically an explosion of fire that just surrounded him that he'll explain to you in the podcast. Um, but most people expected him to die that day. He did not. People expected him to die in the burn unit where he spent over a month um, and every other patient in there had died and he did not. Um, people expected him to choose a professional life that would keep him from showing his face, uh, which experienced a ton of burns and scars and things like that. He did not. And so he continues to live his life with courage, grace and determination and just has a wonderful story. He's a good uh, Catholic man. He's a great Philly boy. He's got a, a, a good Northeastern Philly attitude and approach to life he's a tough guy and it's there's no better example of that than the life that he's created and so brian's book you can go and find that it was published by simon and schuster uh, beyond the mask how my tragedy sparked an incredible life lessons i might never have learned by brian p walsh i 10 out of 10 recommend you go buy that book check it out um and just hope really hope that you take a lot away from from brian's story his courage and all the lessons that he learned experiencing this tragedy. God bless. You were never out of the fight. You were created for a time such as this. And you are now preparing to be sent into battle. God is calling you to be his disciple, to be formed in virtue and holiness. He has appointed you as an ambassador of his kingdom to go and represent him to his people. And he's enlisted you as a soldier of Christ to be sent out to fight for the good in this world. You are not made to make excuses. It's time for you to take extreme ownership for your life for all of your life. It's time to rise up and finally be the man or woman you were created to be. Follow God. Lead others. And never surrender. It is time to begin seeking excellence. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Seeking Access Podcast. My name is Nathan Crankfield, your host. Happy to be here today with my good friend, Brian Walsh. So Brian Walsh, we got to meet each other. We have a, a now a mutual friend, Tommy Spaulding, who's another author and speaker. Uh, and I got introduced to Brian at a retreat back in August 2020. And so we got to spend some time together there. He's a good old Philly boy. You can tell by his attitude and attack and approach on life. And he's had an incredible life, a very inspiring 
uh, life that you've lived, Brian, and, and honored that you were able to share that story with us at the retreat and in your book, Beyond the Mask. So I really want to talk about your experience that inspired you to write the book uh, and that has obviously changed your life in a big way um, and helped you to become the man that you are today <laughs> for, for better or for worse. <laughs> Mostly for better, mostly for better, indeed. And so, yeah, Brian, thanks for being here today. Well, thank you very much, Nathan, for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, it was such an honor for me to be um, introduced to you and spend time with you at the uh, retreat in Charlottesville. And uh, as I think many people expressed to you uh, over those couple of days, that uh, we know the world's in a much uh, better place and in safer hands with uh, young men like you uh, coming up to lead it. So. Uh, thank you for all you do and, and uh, really an honor to be with you. Thank you. I really appreciate that for sure. Awesome. Well, yeah, so I'm excited today. You know, we were just talking a little bit about Seeking Excellence, our mission and the things that we try to get to. And, and I think that your story is incredibly inspiring uh, in a number of ways. But I think that one of the things that I love to do is, is just really dive into different people's experiences and how, you know, helping us to be more empathetic and understanding of each other because of our unique experiences, you know. I think that a consistent movement in our world today um, and a lot of, you know, the leftist agenda and just some of the, you know, socialism and things like that is that, you know, identity politics that you see kind of dominating our society is to group people up and we, we they're trying to stop seeing people as individuals. And so you have an incredible individual story that helps provide a lot of perspective um, from the suffering and challenges that you face. So Brian, I'd love to just get you to kind of start us off with just kind of sharing your story and, and what kind of led you to writing the book. Sure. Well, thanks. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've had, looking back on it, I think a very fortunate life. Um, probably didn't think that back when I was 17 years old, but, um, you know, I was uh, <clears throat> born and raised in a very middle, middle class neighborhood, um, very diverse neighborhood. Um, most people, um, I, I'd say probably more middle to lower class uh, from an economic standpoint. Right. Um, a lot of steel mill uh, workers and, and manufacturing and, and the like. So I grew up in a very uh, close-knit uh, community, um, volunteered. Uh, when I was a, in high school, I was a sophomore in high school, and some of my friends and I volunteered for the local fire service. Um, about a year and a half into um, fighting fires actively. Um, I was a senior in high school. It was uh, October of my senior year in high school. And uh, we responded to a uh, apartment building fire in our neighboring town uh, to help out the fire company that was there. And uh, when we arrived at the scene, um, the building was on fire. The the one half of the building was fully engulfed in flames and the, the other half was, uh, you know, more like a, a hazy cigarette smoke, maybe a bonfire kind of smoky, uh, assuming the firewall had, had stopped the fire. And um, I was asked to take a, a fire hose up to the third floor of that part of the building, which I did. And uh, unbeknownst to us, uh, the fire had leapt over the firewall top of, ahead of us and, and uh, underneath us on the second floor, got in, in the crawl space. And, uh, you know, before we, we knew it, um, just a, a rush of, of just 
darkness uh, and loud noises um, be- became upon us. And what happened was we were now caught in what was what's known as a flashover. And for the audience who's ever seen the movie Backdraft, um, kind of the same experience, different science behind it, but, but literally a, an explosive event um, that happens very, very quickly. And, um, you know, for me, uh, I was in, in one of the apartments uh, getting ready to check for extension of fire overhead, which I never obviously got a chance to do. Um, but once that rush of, of dense, heavy smoke and heat had hit us, um, you know, it forced me to the floor. Um, I couldn't see my, my hand in front of me. Uh, the only, where I, only place I could get some air was, was down as close to the floor as I could. Um, I grabbed onto the fire hose that I had taken up to the apartment. Um, what's interesting about that is one of your, part of your training is if you do get trapped in a building, they teach you to follow the fire hose out because, right. you know, it gets you there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just goes to show you those little things in life that you're told or taught or whatever, and you really forget about them until you absolutely need them, but yeah. they're, they're back in your mind somewhere. Um, and I crawled myself, crawled along that fire hose um, until I got to the end of the hallway where I was able to uh, lean into a very big, heavy metal door with my shoulder. And all the while I was crawling along this floor, I knew I was burning. Um, and um, it was obviously excruciating, painful. Um, everything was engulfed in flames, the, the, the walls, the ceiling. Um, it was it was a harrowing experience. And when I got to lean into the door and get into the stairwell, um, the temperature changed, the cold air that was coming up the stairwell, because it acts like a chimney, uh, hit my face. And, you know, at that point, my face, what was left of it was nerve endings and muscle tissue. And it, it, it really um, just sent a, just a, another excruciating pain into, into me. And I had screamed from the pain. And at that point I passed out. And uh, the next thing I remember uh, was waking up in the ambulance on the way to the local emergency room. Uh, and what I'd later come to f- find out is two of the firemen that were in the building who were evacuating had heard that as they described it, blood curdling scream that I had let out when I, entered the hall, the stairway. And um, they went up to look for me against some recommendations from the chief. And um, when they were getting, they couldn't find me. And when they were getting ready to leave, one of the firemen's flashlight that was stuck, you know, they, they, we have a flashlight uh, strapped to the side of our helmets. And uh, that hit the reflective tape on the back of my coat. And they just reached out and and grabbed and pulled me down the stairwell. And uh, when they got me outside, I was obviously burnt beyond recognition. Um, They didn't know they thought it was somebody else. Then the guy they thought it was came around the corner and they realized it wasn't him. And um, when I woke up in the ambulance, when I finally woke up in the ambulance, they were pouring what I now know is saline all over my face. And I had known the paramedic. Um, And... um, 
you know, he kept saying, Brian, is that you? Brian, is that you? And I said, Fred, of course it's me. Uh, let me get back out there. What, what am I doing in here? And he said, we're right. here in the ambulance. We're taking it to the hospital. Um, so, you know, that was, that was, you know, I went into a local hospital emergency room and then, then we get to some further details on getting into a burn center. But um, obviously uh, a harrowing night for, for any 17 year old, but, but um you know, it was uh, uh, just a devastating evening for me and my family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine what an experience like that would be. You know, I remember you, you went into great detail when you shared it with the, at the retreat. You know, it was, it was more of a like group discussion experience to talk about the book and things like that. And it was, yeah, powerful to hear about that and the, the detail that you remember, you know, and uh, just, I think it's really impressive just the courage that it takes to, to share it, to relive it in a certain sense, you know, each time you share it. And I know you talked about the difficulty of that in, in writing the book as well. And so, yeah, so, you know, I have tons of questions about that whole experience because I think one of the things that is really powerful of the book is kind of your comeback experience, your comeback journey. Could you tell us a little bit about what is, what was that like? Like, how did you know, your time waking up in the hospital and the, the surgeries and all that stuff, like, what was that experience like? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think, you know, the first few days you're, you're really still in shock. Most of the time, uh, I was drifting in and out of consciousness. I had, you know, <clears throat> obviously, uh, passed away a number of times, uh, four to be exact through the process, um, for different reasons. And, um, you know, when I re when I look back on the burn center experience itself, um, I remember um, really drifting out of consciousness. Obviously, on a lot of drugs, uh, morphine was the what they were really pumping into me. But you know, at the end of the day, it was hard to sleep uh, from the pain, and it was it's also hard for me uh, knowing that. You know, and I think I explained this to all of you at the retreat. I really wasn't trying not to die. I was I was fighting off death more than trying to live, and it really was a battle. You know, it was it was a a battle of me. Like if I let myself go to sleep, I may not wake up again. So I <laughs> probably my own worst enemy in that uh, regard. But uh, you know, it was it was painful from not just being burned, but the treatments and what they do to make sure you live uh, by giving you uh, twice a day, I would have uh, debridement uh, for an hour each time where they would take a, a, a metal betadine brush and scrub my wounds, uh, which obviously are all my face. And um, that was excruciating painful, more painful than the burn, to be perfectly honest with you. Right. Um, and, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, I had some, you know, as I was getting out of danger, more youthful optimism of that, you know, I would look the way I looked before I went in there if I did, you know, had these surgeries and, right. and all these things when obviously later on and the reality of that hits that you're not going to is, is, is uh, emotionally painful more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, incredibly difficult, I can imagine. And so I remember you talking about that in the book 
uh, you know, you talked about how, you know, I forget at what point or what number of surgeries later, or you were going to, you know, what, whatever number of plastics or plastic surgeon, you know, reconstructive surgery, uh, reconstructive surgeon that you had seen or met with, you know, and you asked in, in your youthful optimism, you know, to say, I just want you to make me look like I did before. I just want you to fix, fix it all. I want the scars to go away. And the, the surgeon telling you point blank that you're not going to look like you did before. There's no way to create that. And so with that, I mean, obviously, like you, like you just shared the emotional, the emotional pain, the emotional battle that you faced, obviously your, your family, I remember was, was a huge pillar in that, you know, your parents and your siblings and things like that. I remember you talking about them playing a big role in your life, but how did you kind of avoid the, the despair falling into self-pity or what was your journey like with that? Cause maybe you did at certain times, you know, fall into that and then have to bounce back from it. But what was the emotional battle like to maintain? You know, hope? I think, I, I think it evolved. I, I, you know, I, I really can't. And I, I, you just can't sit there and say, Hey, you know, I was full of determination and, um, right. Like hundred percent of the time, and, you know, right. like, you don't even know what that is at 17 years old until you've been through something where you had to do something to be determined. And then you look back on it and go, yeah, I was pretty determined to do that, but I had no idea what it meant. Right. Yeah. Um, And that's kind of really, you know, where I was. I mean, I was, I was fortunate. I was in a a Catholic hospital and my my mother who who goes to mass every day, there was a chapel there. So they could see me from, from noon to one and they could see me from 7, 8 PM. And that was it. And wow. that was the only time I was allowed visitors. And my mother would stay in that hospital. Uh, she would get there at 11 o'clock, uh, go to the chapel, um, come see me, go to five o'clock mass, um, come back and see me and leave for the day. But the, all those hours in between, she stayed in the, in the, in the chapel there. Wow. Uh, so she always had some antidote to give me every time <laughs> all right. o'clock visiting hour of what nice people they were there. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I, I think when, when I got through, um, you know, just the, the first four weeks or so where, you know, I was pretty much done fighting off death and I knew I was going to live and I just didn't know really what to expect. And, you know, I, I will tell you the first time, I, they wouldn't let me see my face and, and I snuck down. I asked to go to, to walk to the men's room and they really didn't like you doing that. And uh, this really nice nurse, Connie, who took care of me probably 40% of the time I was there. Um, she, she, she acquiesced and 10 o'clock at night, let me go to the bathroom by myself. And uh, I went to the mirror and started peeling the bandages off myself and, obviously taking too long. She knocked on the door and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm still going to the bathroom. And she mm-hmm. said, I don't believe in came running in. And here I was half bandaged. And, uh, uh, quite frankly, I will tell you, when I, when I looked at the face, that was staring back at me. I was devastated. I, I just, right. I just couldn't even imagine that, um, you know, I, what I looked like, it was just crazy. And, um, you know, to, to realize at that point, you'll never see your old self again, uh, physically, um, is, is a very emotional, uh, I still get welled up about it. Um, it's a very emotional time for anybody that goes through that. 
Yeah, I can imagine to to look at yourself and not recognize yourself, you know, to look and see a, a stranger in the mirror has to be, yeah, it's unimaginable. I think that there's no way to really, you know, fully empathize with it or to try to even begin to understand what that would be like. Uh, it, it's got to be wild. I think it, it's comparable to, you know, like extreme scenarios where you hear like in in Soviet labor camps or, you know, like Nazi prisons where like people like remove their name, like where you remove your identity because it's part of your, I mean, that's a huge part of your identity, right? Like people talk about struggling. We've, we've talked on here before about people struggling with their identity when they stop being a collegiate athlete or when they leave the army and they're not a soldier anymore, you know, but that's like, you know, next level is your face, like your, your actual, you know, identification uh, kind of changing is, is, yeah, had, had to be very powerful. And so I, I know that that had to be really, really big. So your journey to come to accept that, like accepting who you were, accepting how you looked, uh, accepting the results of, of the fire and all that. And I thought it was really cool how you broke the book down into kind of these two parts, right? So there's two parts, facing facts and then facing forward. So you ha- obviously had a huge period, you know, you dedicated a few chapters to talking about facing the facts and really like accepting this reality. So how did, like, how did you kind of go about doing that? Like, what was the journey from that first moment in the mirror and that utter devastation to growing through? Obviously, there's a lot that happened in many years, but what kind of helped you propel through that? Well, I think, you know, I think a lot of things helped me through. I think I had a ton of people praying for me, which, you know, I, I'm a big believer in positive thinking and, and power of prayer, and it can, it, can, it can get you through a lot of things. Um. But I think the, probably the most important aspect I had was I had, you know, parents who were supportive, um, yeah. siblings that were supportive. Um, I had a, a great faith in in my own ability to, to get better after just staying alive. Um, you know, I had a lot of faith that, you know, God would get me through some dark periods, which I obviously had, and he did. Um, and, you know, I felt very fortunate. And in a lot of ways, I felt fortunate. I mean, you know, I, I skipped this part is probably pretty important. But when I was finishing up my stint at the burn center, um, an infection, which is what usually kills uh, people who have who have burns. Yeah, it's not usually the burn itself. Um the infection went through the entire burn center and there were 12 of us in there, Nathan. Oh, yeah. And, uh, by the time that infection got through there, uh, 11 of the 12 had passed away. Uh, and I was the only one to survive that. Uh, and who knows what the answer to that is, you know, uh, was I young and stronger and just able to fight it off? Uh, luck of the draw a lot of prayers answered a combination of all three i don't know right um but to watch my parents go to funerals for the people that because they became very friendly with the family members and of the other people that were in the burn unit and they they drove as far away as north jersey scranton pennsylvania i think one was out in lebanon pennsylvania you know because the burn center takes you know it was in philly but it's for, you know, obviously traumatic burn injury. Right. Um, you know, to watch them going to funerals the week I'm getting out of the hospital uh, with people that I was laying next to, um, it's pretty sobering. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Yeah, that is a, that is a huge, huge part, huge, uh, yeah, huge aspect of the story that I think is really, really powerful as well. So, yeah, I mean, just the emotional trauma and the, the devastation that, that that had on on you at that, that time in your life, like when you were getting out of the hospital, was what was the combination or what would you say on the spectrum of like pessimistic to optimistic, you know, because I know you've got the obviously like good, strong, Philly, pessimistic, old bastard attitude, you know, <laughs> like where was that at, you know, as far as like being negative and mean towards, you know, being optimistic and joyful, like where were you kind of at at that spectrum at that point? Uh, I don't think I was joyful at all, to be honest with you. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I was, you know, part of part of my fortune, fortune of life is I was born an Irish Catholic with a really sick sense of humor. Um, <laughs> and, you know, everybody in my I have, family. I have come to know that. Yeah, everybody <laughs> in my family uh, has that same humor. Um, right. And I will tell you, humor does get you through a lot. And, you know, you got to remember something. I was in my senior year of high school. It's October. You know, you're having a good, you know, you're three weeks before I had my graduation picture taken. It's the last picture I have of myself before I was born. Right. You know, um, yeah. it's in it's in the back of the book, I think. Yep. Um, you know, so oh, you go from this really good Robert Redford looking guy to uh, to that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, you know, you you go to. So I got to go back to school now. So when I left school, the last time anybody saw me at school, I looked like that picture did. Right. Now I'm going back to school and I'm going to wear a mask for two years. It, it covers my whole face. And then when I have to take it off to eat, I'm going to have classmates who won't sit at the same table with me because they can't eat around me to friends not wanting to go bowling or to a movie with me because they don't want to be seen with me. Um, you know, it's really, um, really at that point, when that kind of stuff happens, it's discouraging. And one of the things I talk about in the first part of that book that you brought up facing facts is, you know, I really had to really had to look at myself and, and accept myself. And uh, that's hard for anybody to do. Um, yeah. And at that age, uh, now I grew up, a, I grew up real quick. Uh, I'll tell you that I, I grew up in five weeks faster than most people would probably grow up in 50 years. Um <laughs> But to sit there and say, okay, look, man, uh, so you're, you know, I'm saying to myself, look, man, you, you know, yeah, this is, this is a screwed up situation. Um, you're going to deal with this, hopefully, what, 70 years, 75 years of looking different, of people taking double takes at you, to, to people laughing at you, to Halloween and people trying to rip your face off. <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just such a different, uh, mentality of where I had to go. You know, I, I just, and, and I had a long recovery ahead of me. You know, I had, I had, I had two and a half years of, uh, physical occupational therapy, 40 surgeries, uh, not in that two and a half year, but over that two and a half years, I probably had 20, some of those surgeries. Right. Um, you know, I had a long road ahead of me and, um, you know, I, I had a fight for everything. I had a fight to open my mouth big enough to take a bite of something. Uh, mm -hmm. all the scar tissue had basically closed my, my mouth. 
which a lot of people appreciated, by the way. (laughs) Naturally. um, You know, to to be able to, you know, I had to cut up a hot dog in like little, little pieces to be able to to eat. And, uh, you know, just, you know, we're eating through a straw until I could get my mouth open for it. I mean, you know, I remember eating a Texas chili hot dog. Uh, one of the first things I ate when I was able to fit a hot dog in my mouth and you would have thought I, I went to heaven. Yeah. Um, and it, it made you appreciate going through all that made me appreciate all of the little things in life that everybody takes for granted, including me. And, uh, you know, being able to go out and not worry about somebody mocking you or making fun of you or, you know, people just take this stuff and they go, oh, yeah, this is just life. Um, and then right. just have some of your best friends or who you thought were your best friends reject you um, just basically because of the way you looked. No other reason. Just, you know, they weren't yeah. strong yeah. enough to, to stand by it because you might look a little different. But I also had some really great friends who did all that. They were real foxhole friends. And I talk about that in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to have those foxhole friends around you. And um, I was fortunate and still am fortunate to have a lot of them. Right. Absolutely. No, it's really big. And I think you just mentioned that. And I think we, we didn't hit on that too much either about the mask, which is obviously a huge part of the, the, uh, the, the, the whole title, you know, beyond the mask and, and that being a huge part of your life. So can you talk a little bit more? I was wearing my mask, my beyond the mask mask to mass today. <laughs> um, so that was cool. But can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the mask experience, like what all that was, what it went into that and why you had to wear it? Yeah. So face, not just. Yeah. Uh, so what what happens when you get a uh, a burn of any sort? You have to wear what's known as a pressure garment, um, and it's about two and a half times smaller than the area than that it's going to cover. In my case, my my entire head uh, and face. So um, I had to wear this. It looks like a stocking mask with a almost looks like a goaltender's mask underneath it, plastic mask underneath it to to you get it in all the crevices of your eyes and your nose and because what it does is it keeps the scars from growing out so that you you know you maintain your features as best you can uh and i you know i i had the mentality and i should have talked about this earlier but during physical therapy or occupational therapy or even wearing that mask i always said what's the best thing i can do what's going to be the best thing i can do to get better and i remember one of the physical therapists uh said to me one time she said just try and be better, just try and be better than the way they, and I, I took that attitude. I just, every time I wore the mask, uh, if I wore it, I was asked to wear it as much as possible, take it off to bathe and to eat. And I ended up wearing that thing an average of over 23 hours a day, uh, for two, for 23 months, so almost two years. Um, and it was all in that purpose. I, you know, just if I was at physical therapy and I had to take one extra step and that was going to get me better, I wanted to do it. If it was wearing the uh, mouth appliance device to get my scar stretched out so I could, could eat again, if I had to wear that two hours a day, I wore it four hours a day. If I, yeah. uh, you know, it was, it was just that mentality of just trying to do everything I possibly could to have no excuses and, and get the best result that I possibly could. And then the chips would fall where they might. Right. 
Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I think, you know, so it's so timely and everybody pointed this out back at the retreat, you know, beyond the mask and making masks of the beyond the mask, <laughs> you know, book is, is pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, you, you definitely took what we complain about today in wearing masks to the grocery store <laughs> to the next level with 23 hours a day for 23 months with the whole dome. Yeah, and it, it covered my entire face and head. So it's not right. like a mouth, nose mask. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I, you know, I think I talk about it in the book. I had played a, a little, you know, 7-Eleven, thought I was holding them up and called the cops. And, you know, I had all kinds of right. issues with it. Crazy but um, the, yeah. the, <clears throat> the title actually came last summer uh, when we were finishing up the book and picks for some titles and my daughter said to me uh why don't you just call it beyond the mask that was you know kind of a big part of the recovery and, and what you did and um how ironic that um it comes out in july where everybody's got to wear a mask and complaining about it yeah. <laughs> very fitting very helpful uh, you know, good thing for me to look back to on days where I have to wear a mask, which is why my Beyond the Mask mask is so <laughs> it's so helpful. It's like, yeah, well, you know, I guess I can't complain about while I'm wearing this one. So uh, that's was funny. I, uh, this morning I, I went out to go to the gym and and I came back in the door and my wife said, what, what are you doing back in? And this is, you know, 6 a.m. Right. And I said, I forgot my mask. And I, as I said it, I'm walking down the hallway and I said, I never thought I'd have to say that again. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> knowing you i feel like you still find the way to to gripe or be frustrated with having to wear a mask now <laughs> you've got so much lesser experience i don't like it but i'm doing it <laughs> you have you have a lot of experience which is great um I, so you just mentioned your daughter helping you come up with the title and I, that's one of my favorite parts of the books is of the book is the different stories you tell about your kids you know we were talking about the one at the urinal <laughs> your bathroom story with your son earlier uh today but i think you had a lot of great stories of how it or, or not even just stories but like the insights of how you feel like it helped them to develop as uh you know as they were going into adulthood and so you know, I remember you, you telling the one like adorable story of your son. I think you said he was very little and he asked if he was going to look like you when he grew up um, and just like them trying to like understand it and make sense of it in their own mind. And so what do you think, like, how did it really help strengthen them as they matured or like, what are some of the things that, you know, you think were most powerful for them um, growing up with, with that uh, experience? Well, you know, and look, I, I wouldn't say that I set out to do any of this or had this big mantra of, Hey, I, I want to be a great role model or it, it just didn't happen. I just parented. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, like we all parent by trial and error. Um, and then we always throw in the bad stuff that our parents did to us and do that to our kids. So um, <laughs> it's kind of parenthood 101. Um, but you know, in all seriousness, I think um, one of the things I always tried to do uh, and failed many times along the way, but you, you want to lead by example. And, um, sure. you know, as they, they talk about in the Bible, right, you want to be nice to people and kind to your neighbor and treat them how you want to be treated. And, and, you know, there's nothing better than the Ten Commandments, is there? I mean, <laughs> when it comes to, to living your life. And yeah, I think at the end, end of the day, what what happened for my family because of this accident was a net positive. My kids 
uh, were all accepting. They knew at some point, not obviously when they were three, but when they were in middle school and everything else, that I looked different than than, than their buddy's dad did. Or, you know, I'd, and, you know, they never really came out and said, geez, why do you look different? You know, it was more of, you know, hey, uh, little Johnny told me that, you know, Asked me what happened to you. What happened? I don't know what happened to you. So, you know, it's kind of surprising to me because they never really looked at me any different because they knew me as I was then to them. Um, right. was and all I was. That's all they knew. They didn't. They didn't know. Seventeen-year-old uh, Brian. They knew this is my dad and this is what he looks like. Right. And uh, that was eye-opening for me. Is that you know you can really be blinded. Um, to these types of things because that's just your environment. And um, it was really cool to hear. Um, it was heartbreaking at some points because I know somebody had had to ask them that question that their father looks different. They have to come up to this reality that, geez, uh, what happened to the old bastard? Um, <laughs> though I probably shouldn't have said that, but um, <laughs> the old guy, um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, nothing phased them. If somebody was in a wheelchair or somebody had looked a little different or somebody limped or uh, they had great empathy for people and uh, they still do. I mean, they, they really do. And, and they're, they're the first ones to tell me that my, uh, my Irish Catholic sense of humor is the most archaic, uh, in, politically incorrect humor that's ever hit the face of the earth. So, um, As recently as today. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah they're, they have become uh, great uh, adults um, and they really love each other, which is really cool. Um, nice. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't be happier. And I think they just became much better people because they realized my wife met me well after my accident. And she was able to see through um, these scars um, to to see what my heart was like. She might uh, she might tell you she doesn't like what she sees, but um, <laughs> but she didn't you see know, it. <laughs> you know, I I uh, I often say I wasn't able to win her over with my Robert Redford Robert Redford good luck, so I had to rely on my charm and wit. Um, <laughs> this is no easy task. <laughs> which is no easy task either. So. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, I, I just couldn't be more proud of, of the way she raised those kids and, and the mother that she is and the wife that she is. And it, it, it's, it's been a phenomenal, phenomenal ride. Yeah, that's awesome. She's been, you know, very high on my prayer intentions since the day I met you. So <laughs> that's great. Hers and everybody else's. <laughs> that's right. I'm glad she got some love and her, acknowledgement. Her, her nickname in my friend group is uh, Sister Marianne. So that gives you some indication of how they think of it. Right. I love it. it. Her two favorite favorite words are (laughs) O'Brien. And you give her plenty of opportunity to use that phrase. That is for sure. That's one thing I know for certain. Do your kids take after you and having that good Northeast philosophy that I also share where you're nice to strangers, but mean to all your friends? Yes. (laughs) That's great. Just as things, just as life should be. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The old, the old joke is you're much better off being their friend than in their family. 
right? <laughs> that's amazing. So that's where the most brutal, the most brutal jokes and things come across, I assume. That is awesome. So well, another thing that you talk about that I think is really great in the Imagine It's Worst chapter, in chapter 11 titled Imagine It's Worst, is you talk about the need to take the focus off yourself and not be so self-focused. And I think that's something that people struggle with in general. And I always encourage people that, you know, the, the virtue of generosity, how much that can change your outlook on life when you focus on, on being content with what you have and trying to, you know, help other people to improve their lives, to add value to others and just focusing on other people. And I talk about, you know, in my different experiences of my life and suffering, you know, whether that be in the military or my personal life, that every time I was able to look at how can I help other people, it's amazing how that help allows you to have more strength, you know, more grace, more adrenaline, you know what I mean, uh, to tackle your problems as well. So talk to me a little bit about that. What was that like to, to especially in such a sincere and deep struggle personally, how did you lift your eyes up and, and look outwards to help others? Well, you know, I think it really started when everybody around me died, right? Um, you, you start to think, I don't think it was a switch like that, but you, you start to think, you know, um, boy, I'm lucky. Uh, that could have been me. Right. Um, and then you just watch life around you. And I think if any, everybody opens their eyes and just looks at their neighbors or everybody's got something, everybody's going through something. Uh, it may not be visible like the scars on my face, um, but there's something. And, yeah. and there's tough times for everybody. It, it could be psychological. It could be uh, financial. Um, it could be physical. Um, you just don't know what, what somebody else is going through. And I think it's really, um, for me, being able to give back. I mean, I was, you know, being a volunteer fireman, I was giving back in my community, um, going and visiting burn unit uh, patients in the burn unit, you know, years after I was burned was giving back. And, um, you know, I always tried to be very charitable and very kind to people. Um, and not that I wouldn't joke around about it, but it, you know, it, everybody was comfortable. We were comfortable in our own skin. Um, and I think once, once you can get yourself in that mindset that then you can go help other people try and get there as well. And I will tell you this, every time I've ever volunteered to do anything, um, and people would always thank you. Thank you for doing this, doing that, whatever you're doing. I will tell you, I walked away and I got more out of doing that for myself than I ever gave back to these people. Yeah. Um, and I think the spirit of one of my favorite words in the whole English language is gratitude. Um, it, you know, you can just see and feel um, and have gratitude in your life. Um, you should be pretty fulfilled. Um, just grateful that you woke up in the morning. I loved uh John Gordon's book and when he when he talked about stop saying I have to and start saying I get to yeah I have to get up in the morning I get to get up in the morning right and it it really does give you a a different mindset I think um just reaching out to people um stopping and talking to people 
Um, you know, everybody has their face down in their phone all the time and yeah. they're missing, they're missing the world around them. And, uh, we need, and I think this pandemic has proven out that human beings need interaction, right? They need mm-hmm. to be interacting with one another. And I'm hoping after all these masks disappear, no pun intended, um, that we get back to a place where we're not so dependent on, on our phones, you know, they've, they've taken over our phone, our computer, our calendar, almost everything in our life. Yeah. And the last thing, the last thing it can take over is our relationships and our family. Mm-hmm. And we, we got to keep that from happening. Yeah, absolutely. That's really big. I think uh, the gratitude piece is, is so huge and just changing. And I try to, it's the same, you know, I try to change my own verbiage in that, you know, to say, instead of I have to do this, I get to do that. And just realize how much of a gift so much of your life is when you really start to change that that perspective. I think it's it's gigantic. And so that's really good. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's awesome. So, you know, the quote that you have at the beginning of the book, so you have great quotes in the beginning of each chapter. But just in closing, I'd love to talk about the quote that you chose to be at the very beginning of the entire book, uh, which is a quote from John Lancaster Spaulding. And he says, we are more disturbed by a calamity which threatens us than by one which has befallen us. And so I want to know from your perspective, Brian, like what does that quote mean to you and what made you choose that for the beginning of, of this book? Yeah, it gives you chills, that, that quote, doesn't it? Because yeah. it, it's, uh, it's so simple, uh, but at the same time, very deep. And um, I think it talks to anxiety and worry um, and panic in people. I think it talks to today, even though yeah. it was in there before the pandemic even hit. Right. Um, you know, and serendipity, right? I think there's a lot in this book that was done well before all of it done before this pandemic. And when we look back on it and say, use those lessons for today, it, it's really, for me, just kind of eye opening. Yeah, for sure. And that quote, you know, you think about all the things you worry about that never happen. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and look, we have an entire world, an entire nation in the United States worried about COVID-19 and I'm not minimizing COVID-19 or anybody who lost their life from it or had it and has complications from it. But at the end of the day, you have a 99% chance of surviving COVID-19 if you get it. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're all sitting here worried about this calamity that may happen, but it's probably not going to. Right. Right. And that's really what that quote uh, speaks to is you know, worrying about something that may happen that probably never will. And, um, you know, it's just important for me when I read that quote to keep that into perspective as I think about things, um, whether it's a business dealing or dealing with one of my kids or their worries and they're telling me they're worried about something and, you know, just kind of, hey, let's, let's worry about it when the facts happen. Um, you know, and I, I used this example the other day with somebody because they asked me about the same exact quote. And I said, if the, if the media had covered car accidents in the last eight months, like they covered COVID, nobody would get in a car again. Right. And, you know, there's a death rate in car accidents is much greater than COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we lose perspective and I, I don't know whether it's the media or, or as you said earlier, the siloing of people, you know, this group thinks this way, so they need to be over there and this group thinks that way. 
I got to tell you, one of my best friends was a, is a dyed-in-the-wool liberal. And I'm a moderate conservative. And uh, he, he said six months ago, while all this election stuff was going on, hey, man, he goes, you, you and I used to be able to sit and have conversations 20 years ago about all our differences and you just laugh about them and, and move on and respect each other's differences. I say, and I said, he said something. He goes, what do you think happened? I said, you lost your perspective. Right. You, what you think is always right. And, and it's not. People have different views. And, and you went into this rabbit hole and you only think one way now. And, and if people don't think like that, you can't be friends with them or you can't talk with them. And, that, and that's the complete opposite of what um, should be espoused and acted on. Right. Yeah, I think it's incredibly sad. And I, I, I love I. I mean, I'm pretty sure on separate podcasts, I have talked about that exact analogy of car accidents, because I think that's so important, uh, especially because if you've ever been in a state, so like you, you're in South Carolina right now, and in Georgia, I remember when I lived in Georgia, a lot of the highways would, especially in Columbus, Georgia, the highways would track the number of vehicular yep. deaths in the state that year. And it would like blow your mind. Like I remember going to the movies sometimes, you know what I mean? Like driving out to go to the movies two hours later, come back and it's like up 13 and you're like, what just happened? You know what I'm saying? And you see thousands of people have died in the car and you're like, Oh my goodness. If you've never seen it before, it's very startling. Right. If you've seen that for 50 years, you're probably pretty numb to it. And so I think that that's, that's the exact thing that I always talk about with COVID or, or imagine if we track the number of people who recovered each day. And you yep. saw the recovery rates and you saw that, you know what I mean? Like this is many people have gotten it and have survived in the last 30 days or whatever. Uh, I think it would just be a completely different experience than 24 seven coverage on national news outlets of number of deaths and cases. But um, no, I think that's great. I think, I think the quote is so powerful and, and it does give you chills. I think the other thing that I think is so important for people to realize too, is that, not only does the fear sometimes never uh, manifest itself, but sometimes it happens and it's not that bad. Or even in, in, you know, good cases, sometimes you enjoy it. Sometimes, I mean, how, how many times does that happen to kids, right? Where you're like, just try it. You might like it or just try right. this experience. You know, you're scared to go down a water slide or something. And then the kid does it and then they never want to leave it for the rest of the day. You know, like that oftentimes is our experience as well. And so it, it is so interesting, you know, fear is such an interesting, uh, thing. And I think that that quote is such a great preparation for the book, you know, because it really does kind of walk you through like how, um, yeah, just how, how much, you know, the things that we fear, you going through such a powerful experience, um, you know, that our fear of things and then when they manifest itself, you know, just like your subtitle of the book, how tragedy sparked an incredible life, lessons you might have never learned, you know, and to be able to have that mindset as you Obviously not every, as you mentioned earlier, not every moment through the experience where you like, wow, can't wait to learn today's lesson, you know, but <laughs> you're still able to generally, right? <laughs> but you still, you know, can look back at something like that and say, wow, the, literally the greatest fear possibly other than dying of a firefighter, you had the, the second worst thing that could happen potentially, you know, um, happen to you or top, I would, I'll call it top five, <laughs> you know, and, uh, as one of my uh, my one of my friends said to me, uh, this is a long time ago now, but uh, I guess I was about two years in. I was back at the fire service. I was still helping out, and um, we we're you know somebody said uh, grabbed one of the new volunteers and said, "Look, here's the difference between him and I." 
uh, and I'm standing there and the guy's like, what? And he goes, I'm a successful firefighter. He's not. <laughs> and then one of, the, one of the other firemen jumped in and said, yeah, Jesus thought so well of him. He kept them in there just long enough, not enough to kill them and not enough to leave them without any scars, but just long enough. So, you know, who, <laughs> who knows why all this happens? And, um, you know, you got to, it really, Look, I'm not saying you laugh at things that happen to you because they're serious. Um, but you have to keep your humor uh, and perspective, more importantly. And if you're able to breathe and live and enjoy your family, there's not much more you can ask for. Right. Amen. And so just to, just to close out, you know, you didn't talk anything about like your present day life, but you obviously went on to start. Um, I can't remember the name. Something in Walsh Financial. Yeah, Walsh and Nicholson Financial Walsh Group. Walsh and Nicholson Financial Group. Yeah, which which has been incredibly successful. So, talk a little bit about that, like what that kind of journey and starting the company. Yeah, no, I, you know, I I got into business that uh, most people told me I should not get into, and uh, a lot of people wouldn't hire me because of the way I looked getting into that business. And uh, you know, obviously, you're dealing with a lot of face to face interaction. You're sitting there right. talking to people about their insurance products or their finances or, or whatever it might their investments, whatever it happens to be, and um it's just something I like to do. And, and, uh, yeah, that was at times were a little tough from time to time. You'd catch somebody, you know, kind of looking at you like, Oh my God, what happened to this guy? But, you know, I always put it out on the table, you know, I said, Hey, you know what? I, I burnt a fire as a volunteer fireman and, you know, just be honest with people. And, um, you know, I, I will tell you the biggest compliment you ever get in life. Um, and I get it a lot. So I feel very fortunate is people will say to me, man, when I talk to you, I don't even see those scars anymore. Mm. You know, so, you know, you're able to, to reach people on a level of their heart as opposed to a visual level. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Similar to like what you share with your wife, people are able to, yeah, see you for who you really are. The old grumpy SOB that you really are, which is such a gift for all of us who get to know you. <laughs> oh man, that's amazing! Well, I, I hope you. I hope at some point you share with your audience the uh, heroic measures you took to save my life and start <laughs> That's right. So you know, you know, you're getting old when you can't walk down four very wide steps. <laughs> We're walking through downtown Charlottesville. And I think you just missed one, right? Like you just yeah. either thought it was the last one or whatever. And oh my goodness, second to last step, my man starts going down. I thought I was looking for snipers in the treetops, you know what I mean? <laughs> and you're falling to the ground, just a heroic Samson-like move to keep this old guy from hitting the pavement. <laughs> and I think in that moment, you said something smart about, imagine if I had to scrape my face or something. Yeah. If you if you'd, <laughs> Because it was the face first dive that you took. <laughs> Imagine that. I think I said, imagine adding some concrete burns to this. I don't know what dinner would be like. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Some bruises. Yeah, we didn't need that. And so I, I was, you know, blessed to have the opportunity to prevent it. <laughs> Such a gift. Thank you for the reminder of that. I forgot. That's so awesome. Well, awesome, Brian. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been a great conversation. Your story is incredible. You know, I'm, I'm blessed to have gotten to know you and your and your story over the last several months. And so I look forward to, to doing more work together and just continuing to get to know you.
Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Nathan, listen, buddy, as, as I said in the beginning, and I, I think I told you in Charlottesville, you're a hell of a young man. I, you know, I hope my daughter comes home with somebody uh, just like you. I couldn't be more proud if that were to happen. And um, uh, just keep doing your, your great work. And, and uh, I know you will. And uh, keep keep me in your prayers and I'll keep you in mine. And, and um, Godspeed, brother. Amen. And pray for the women, <laughs> the yeah. wife and the girlfriend <laughs> who need the most prayers. Which one do you want me to pray for? <laughs> okay. Very good. That's very good. Very Brian Walsh. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. All right, buddy. Have a great one. Thanks. You too.